Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. During the day, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that mostly is about New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods. On most programs, unlike today's, we focus on neighborhoods, exploring their history and also their current energy, their texture and their vibe. What makes these New York neighborhoods special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, and nonprofit organizations, as well as artists and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that is not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, some of these special shows have covered things like a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York. We had a show on the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. We talked about Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we had several special episodes during Stonewall 50. And we've even explored the history of bicycles and cycling. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks with the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or unique New York architectural phenomena. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcasts. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast services, some of which I don't know the names, but they're out there. Today is one of those special shows where we will explore two iconic architectural landmarks in the city, the Woolworth Building and Rockefeller Center and the art of Rockefeller Center. My first guest is a Rediscovering New York regular, who's also our special consultant, David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. David's clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David hosts a series called Room at the Top, which is co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, and I'm fortunate enough to have been included in some of these great events. David's writings have appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, a most hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be back. You're a regular on the show, but uh, we have a growing group of listeners, and not all of them know your background. Um, you're from the area, but not from the city itself, at least not originally. Actually, I am. <laughs> I mean, you're from uh, the area, but not from the city. But oh, from the city originally? Right. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, from New York? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you exactly. were, grew up on Long Island. Uh, I, I did grow up on Long Island, but born in Manhattan. Born in Manhattan. Okay. <laughs> raised on Long Island. So, so this time yeah, I got yeah. a chance to get stumped by you, which exactly. I really like. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, yes, yeah, so um, I grew up uh, in, a, in a household. My mother was a painter and an artist, a sculptor. I was always very interested in art. And uh, we had a chance as children to be among the youngest museum docents, actually, in the history of New York State. The first children docents for a, uh, a costume docent interpretation of a museum site, in this case, the Old Bethpage Village out in Long Island, Old Bethpage, Long Island, a great place that I absolutely recommend to anyone who can go visit it. Um, that really stoked my interest in the history of old buildings, how they were put together, what they meant, and how they operated sort of in, in social history in America. And then as I grew older, I went to Vassar, as you did yourself. Indeed. And um, uh, I took a double major in English and art history, and the art history had a focus on architecture. And from that day to this, I've been very interested in the history of American architecture specifically, and how Americans and American culture has chosen to kind of interpret itself through architecture. It's really fascinating to me. Post Vassar, and post the great art history department that we both experienced. Yes, absolutely. Um, what were some of the influences that had you decide that you would make architectural history and also New York architecture the focus of your, of your career? I think just growing more and more alive as I was a, a young kid to, for example, my, my grandmother had a house on the Hudson River, that was spectacular. I mean, it, it was very, very beautiful to us when we were kids. It was just an old farmhouse, but it was full of these amazing things. And sort of like seeing how 
a house could be kind of positioned in a landscape and how that made all the difference in the world was something that kind of really stayed with me. And then I was always fascinated, even as a kid, by the complexity of the city, by the engagement and kind of excitement of the environment, by the fact that the buildings were so tall. And the more that I wanted to learn about why they were tall and how that all came to be, the more things kind of fell into place as I grew older. Mm. Well, speaking about uh, skyscrapers and architecture in New York, uh, that brings us to one of the most iconic structures in the city, as far as I'm concerned, the Woolworth Building. Yes. You know, once upon a time, not that long ago, um, you could say the name Woolworths, and most people would associate it with the store where you could get so much, the iconic five and dime. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the age of Amazon, um, in in the dynamic changes that we've experienced in retail, there's a growing portion of the population that won't have the same identification or reference with exactly. Woolworths mm-hmm. or with a five and dime. But uh, my generation, I'm 59, we certainly did. Mm-hmm. Um, before we talk about the, the building that, that the company built, let's talk about the company behind it. Um, Woolworth pioneered and developed merchandising, um, uh, direct purchasing, sales, and customer service practiced, uh, commonly, practices that are commonly used today. Uh, Although, believe it or not, the first store, which opened in New York State in Utica in 1879, ended up failing. The second store opened in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You know, one of the innovations Mm -hmm. was that customers can handle pretty much all the merchandise on their own. Before that time, traditional stores had uh, counters and they had goods behind a counter. And uh, you had to tell a sales clerk what you wanted. But Woolworth... uh, pioneered you being able to go in and handling all the merchandise yourself, picking out what you want, browsing, and and going up and purchasing it. Uh, you know, there have been a number of movies where you could actually see this. Uh, they're iconic, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. I know I'm dating myself a little right. bit. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, there was a Woolworths right on Fifth Avenue. Yes. Today, you, was, would, you, mm-hmm. you, you, you would not see that. Um, how many stores did Woolworths have in the U.S. when they decided to build what would ultimately be the world's tallest skyscraper for a long, long time. They had almost 600 stores, 596 stores across the United States with a a basically sort of a focus in the mid-Atlantic, the Northwest, um, definitely in the South. Obviously, there are Woolworth stores that are historic for beyond their you know, uh, kind of mercantile history in terms of, for example, Martin Luther King and the sit-ins at certain counters, et cetera, and so forth that took place in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, Woolworth's soda fountains were famous all the way out through the Midwest. And Woolworth's was actually one of the very first department stores to make incursions into the UK. The Woolworth's uh, brand became so well known in the UK that several people in Britain, I remember a great uh, British essayist and the New Yorker saying that he was very surprised as a little boy learned that Woolworths was actually an American concern. He associated so much with the British High Street that he felt that it must be something from Great Britain. So Woolworths was probably the first chain store of its type to actually, unlike Sears, for example, also a very, very great store with a very distinguished history, the first store to actually expand beyond the borders of simply American consciousness and become a kind of an international phenomenon. And it was such a phenomenon that, um, uh, and it was so profitable that the company was able to build the tower that we're going to talk about completely with cash. They didn't have to borrow a dime. Exactly. No pun intended <laughs> to actually build build the damn thing. A nickel or a dime. A nickel yes, or a right. dime, right, right. Uh, just as kind of a post-log before we get to the building itself, uh, Woolworths went out of business in 1997 and ended right. up being bought by the Venator Group, which owns Footlogger. And the company owned uh, the Woolworth building until 1998. Uh, where is the Woolworth building located? The Woolworth building is at 233 Broadway. It is directly across from City Hall Park. Uh, and it is just south of what is called Park Place, which is... Um, one of the cross streets in Lower Manhattan. It fills the entire block between Park and the next street and faces City Hall Park directly across from City Hall Fountain. What was in, you have Newspaper Row across uh, from Park Row, but um, what was on that, generally what was on that side of Broadway and that side of City Hall Park? That side of Broadway was developed very early as a commercial sector in the 19th century and it held several luxury hotels 
portions of those original buildings still exist. The original Astor Hotel, there is still a, a chunk of that that exists one block south of the Woolworth, just south of what is uh, the New York Transportation Building, which came up a little bit after the Woolworth, but sort of echoes some of its forms and some of its treatments. Um, very high-class hotels. Uh, the Sun Building is to the north of City Hall and uh, the Tweed Courthouse. That building, probably more than any other building in that district, shows what that district looked like before the rise of skyscrapers. Very, very elegant, very severe limestone detailing, very, very beautiful, kind of a Georgian slash Italianate mode. And kind of like the Stewart store on the other side of Chamber Street. Yes, exactly, exactly. So buildings of that height, that nature, very luxurious very sort of aristocratic in a certain way. Um, but that type of mercantile culture and that type of society was already being chased, if you will, up Broadway well before the Woolworth Building was built. Wow. So uh, the Woolworth Building basically replicated and then then began to replace buildings of that nature. What's the backstory of how F.W. Woolworth decided to build what would have been, at that point, one of the architectural wonders of the, uh, of the city and certainly of the world? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> how long do we have? Um, I ask good questions the, on the show. Uh, exactly. As you I mean, the, the, the Woolworth building was originally uh, designed, and by the way, I'm going to just mention the architect here. So Cass Gilbert is the, the architect of the Woolworth building. He is one of the most talented architects of the Beaux-Arts period and early 20th century in New York City. Um, Other buildings that he designed include the United States Supreme Court, the state capitol buildings for West Virginia and Minnesota, both of which actually are masterpieces. The one in West Virginia is in Charleston. It's almost a reason to simply go there to see it. It has the largest Bavarian crystal chandelier in the world. Wow. A huge, in West Virginia. A huge globe suspended from the center of the dome that weighs almost two tons and looks like a dandelion fluff ball when you see it in photographs. It's really it's really quite, quite spectacular. Um, uh, he also did 99 West Street for people who are in New York City. Uh, he did n- numerous buildings around the city, but 99 West Street was a Gothic Revival skyscraper, and it was probably what got him the commission for the Woolworth Building because obviously people saw it. They really liked it. It was a very delicate, very, very refined, very, very beautiful building, still is. And um, so uh, what what was designed originally was supposed to be a 12- to 16-story commercial building. And Woolworth himself said originally, quote, that he had no desire to, quote, erect a monument that would cause posterity to remember me. Well, that didn't last. By September, so he had an ego. Uh, yes. <laughs> it, it, he, it, it became cultivated once he realized what he could do. He was inspired by travels in Europe. He'd be constantly asked about the Singer Building, which was at that time the tallest building in New York City. This very grand building, unfortunately, no longer exists in a very sort of bizarre Second Empire mode. Um, I wish that it was still around, but it it, it isn't. But Woolworth kind of had the idea, if everyone's asking me about this and not asking me about my company, what if I built a building that could surpass that? The Singer Building was just a few blocks south. So he's sort of like, let me do something that would bring in people and he's sort of like I want to make it sure that people who visit this building are able to tell other people that they have been to the tallest building in the world and so he kept on revising and revising and revising the plans until it grew to its ultimate height over 700 feet tall taller than the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company building which actually was technically the tallest building in New York City at the time. That was on Madison Square. On Madison Square, still exists, still gorgeous. Napoleon Lebrun and Sons, huge clock towers, beautiful building. But the Woolworth Tower really took it to another kind of moment, I think, in architecture. Hmm. The, The Metropolitan Life Tower is a tower. The Woolworth Building is a skyscraper. There's no mistaking the two. Wow. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding and talk about the iconic Woolworth building. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our first guest uh, to showcase the iconic Woolworth Building, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, tell us a little bit about Landmark Branding and what you do. Sure. So uh, my company provides marketing services and support to brokers, developers, uh, building owners, architects, and design firms. Uh, The focus is on both historic and contemporary architecture. And I provide everything from uh, bios, corporate mission statements, website text and copy, editorial. I assist with uh, PR firms. uh, And I lead guided tours. I create VIP events. And also I do um, sort of listings and such and so forth for distinguished buildings, like on a case-by-case basis. My blog is Every Building on Fifth, which is on my uh, website, which is landmarkbranding.com. It's a capsule history of every single building on Fifth Avenue, along with a photograph. And it is complete. I went from Washington Square Park all the way up to the Harlem Armory, one of the greatest Art Deco buildings in New York City, by the way. And uh, it took me, I think, about five years to do it. It wow. was really, it's, it's almost 700 entries, I think. So there's, there's a lot of like, things to work with. Um, currently working on a, a book proposal on the history of the penthouse and uh, working with some of the, the top brokers and real estate firms in New York. And you give great lectures. I have I've, we've partnered before well, on things you. aside yeah, from yeah. The, the, yes, so. yes. Um, getting back to the Woolworth Building, how long did it take to build, and when did it open? Well, it it started in 1910, um, and then it, it went on till 1913. Uh, the actual construction period probably started in 1911 in June or July. By that time, the building's foundations were complete. Um, ahead of the target date, by the way. And steel beams and girders use the framework. Uh, they, they weighed so much that in order to prevent the streets themselves from caving in, a group of surveyors examined Broadway on the route along which the beams would be transported. Steel from the building was provided by the American Bridge Company. From foundries in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, it took over 45 weeks to manufacture. The building itself opened on April 24, 1913. The construction process involved hundreds of workers. Daily wages ranged from $150 for laborers to $450 for skilled workers, which actually during that time period was considered a very generous uh, recompense. And how long did it maintain? It was the tallest building in the city and the world. How long did it maintain that? Until 1930. It seems amazing that, that, that it was that long of a gap, but a building constructed in 1913, finished rather in 1913, maintained its crown for over 25 years until Through the, the, first cri- World until War the and Chrysler the building was, yeah. was constructed wow. and finished in 1930. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Empire State Building was finished in 1931 and remained the tallest building in New York City until the late and much lamented World mm-hmm. Trade Center. 
One of the things that's that's unique about the Woolworth Building, and uh, David and I actually were at an event uh, just hours ago at the Woolworth yes. Building, <laughs> although we didn't go through the regular lobby, but yeah, I, I went into the lobby on the way up on the entrance on the side. Um, the lobby is almost church-like. It's even it has a cathedral-like feeling when you walk into it. Um, it's not enormous as lobbies go, but it, it's I'm going to use a, a, a modifier here. It's so unique that it tempts me to put an adjective before it. You know, is, what, what, would that there were a word in the English language that described what this what this lobby is like? Soaring. <laughs> that to me, actually, I, I I I thought about it myself, and I thought the the great thing about the American skyscraper. And I should just say the skyscraper because the skyscraper is an American invention. Is Lewis Sullivan's dictum: "It must be every inch a proud and soaring thing." Definitely, the Woolworth Building is that, and the lobby picks up that promise and kind of makes something of it. It's very ethereal in a way. You say cathedral-like, and I agree with you. But cathedrals are also, I think, a little bit more about vaulting and stonework and kind of like the idea of the earth coming up to the sky. And in the Woolworth, it's pure fantasy. There's a, there's a kind of a flyaway aspect to the lobby. It becomes this kind of gilded sort of extravagance. And it's full of these amazing grotesques and kind of figures based on the people who built the building. If you have a chance to tour the lobby, and tours are available, um, check the Woolworth Building website, I believe, has a link to tours that are given actually by the great-granddaughter of the architect. Um, it shows gargoyles. Cass Kilbert's great-granddaughter? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. So it shows um, uh, gargoyles and grotesques based on Cass Gilbert himself clutching a model of his building, the engineer with some sticks of steel in his hands, um, F.W. Woolworth uh, with a tower of nickels and dimes. So it, it was a very sort of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of explication of the Gothic revival. Cass Gilbert was very, very aware of the fact that he was using a sort of a quote-unquote out-of-date style and he tried to make it as fresh and as modern as he possibly could. Hmm. Well, one of the influences behind the lobby is that uh, Woolworth didn't build this building only for his company. He partnered with the... Yes, the Irving Trust. Irving Trust. So. And, uh, and they had their main branch in the building. For in, many, uh, many years, Irving Trust was the main tenant hmm. of, uh, of the Woolworth Tower. Uh, they shared the offices with the Woolworth Building Company. Hmm. The structure of the building was designed with some attractions for the general public when it opened. What were some of those that uh, the public... Well, the main one that was for the public was the Observation Tower, uh, which was up in the very, very spire of the building. It is still visible from the street. It is this kind of um, gothic spire on top of the pyramidal top of the Woolworth Building. And um, they used to charge 15 cents to go up there and kind of take a look at the city from around that. And, of course, this was part and parcel of Woolworth's idea that people would be able to say that they had visited the tallest building in the world. Was that the same uh, deck that we were on earlier tonight? or is No, no. That would have been a good seven to eight floors above, above us. Above it, okay. And literally only one or two people would have been able to go out at a time. Really? So, yeah. Wow. It's, wow. it's a very small little perch. Similar to the the torch and the Statue of Liberty, was having attractions for the public uh, new for an office building, like putting features in to attract people to visit that otherwise wouldn't have a reason to go to an office building. This was probably one of the first to really publicize it. Uh, there were observation platforms available in proto skyscrapers as early as the 1850s in Philadelphia when a great Gothic revival building that may have influenced both Lewis Sullivan, Frank Furness, and several of the skyscraper architects um, overall was built in Philadelphia. It rose to a height of eight stories, and there was a huge medicine bottle on the top of it, and people were allowed to go up and kind of look out of this bottle at Philadelphia. So it was not the first by any means, but it was probably the first really modern version of this kind of idea that a commercial building could also be a civic building. Oh, wow. There were also a number of other in innovations, uh, the like the exterior lighting, for example. Oh, yes. Now, uh, that, that was quite remarkable. Um, the, the Woolworth building um, was sort of one of the very first buildings to kind of have a exterior lighting program. Um, even the Singer building didn't have that uh, that much outside. 
And um, it was sort of, uh, they had a thing where it was illuminated more and more and more as you went further and further up the, stru the, the structure. Um, when it was kind of erected, there was an idea that uh, there would be exterior lighting at the base of the building. And they realized that that was simply, it was impractical. And it was also something that the office tenants were not fond of. So what they did was they, they placed four powerful searchlights atop nearby buildings. This is the, the original lighting form. And a constantly rotating lamp at the very apex of the tower. Um, ultimately, they erected some nitrogen lamps and reflectors above the 31st floor. And they had the intensity of the lighting increase of height. Wow. And of course, there was a first when the building opened up in terms of its electric uh, extravaganza. Oh, yes. There was there was a uh, a tremendous sort of party when the the Woolworth Building was finally opened uh, on April twenty fourth of nineteen thirteen. Um, F W Woolworth held a grand dinner. It was on the building's twenty seventh floor for over nine hundred guests. Um, attendees included over eighty congressmen who arrived via special train uh, from Washington D C. And the uh, guest of honor who was not present was the president of the United States himself, Woodrow Wilson. He pushed a button in the White House at the Oval Office desk to officially turn on the building's lights. Well, was his button actually connected to those lights? I don't think so. <laughs> but it was a symbolic gesture nonetheless. Probably the first time that a United States president has been allied with the real estate world. Of course, we have a little bit more of that these days. Uh, Yes, we're not. We won't talk about uh, that. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. yeah. There were a number of other innovations in the building. For example, it had uh, it was the first to have high one of the first to have high speed elevators that could take yes. you up to the top. Yes, and it was the first building in the world to have both local and express elevators. Wow, that did not happen. It what did not occur in the Singer Building. It didn't occur uh, for many many years prior to that, and uh, the elevator doors themselves in the original lobby uh, have a kind of a, a unique aspect. The, obviously, the lobby itself is a, is a masterpiece, and it's, that's by Cass Gilbert. But the elevator doors were designed by Lewis Comfort Tiffany and Studios. Wow. And yeah. they are sort of this amazing kind of Babylonian Art Nouveau-style treatment. Um, they're really quite beautiful, and they create a kind of a shimmering effect as they open and close that is quite memorable. Hmm. Um, I want to talk um, for a minute about how the building was affected by the attacks of September 11th. There was actually damage to the windows. The building was without power and water for, for a while. Mm. Um, and for a long time, the lobby was not, was not open to the public. Um, wait, the couple of minutes we have left, what kind of impact has the Woolworth Building had on architecture in the United States and in New York specifically? <sighs> You know, you, you, we could almost do an entire show about how the Woolworth Building affected American architecture. It came before the, the very famous Chicago Tribune Building competition in 1921-1922, uh, which, which ended in a Gothic Revival building, not entirely unlike the Woolworth Building in terms of genesis, but with an entirely different treatment. I feel the Warworth Building is an incredible kind of progenitor of the skyscraper. It incorporates the setback in a very sophisticated way before the setback became part of the zoning code. In other words, this is a building that rises in setbacks before it needed to. The, the Gothic detailing is extraordinary. It is extravagant. But Cass Gilbert requested that it be made of terracotta so that it could show off the building's skeleton, its structure. In other words, he knew he was playing with an old-fashioned style, but he wanted to reveal the truth of the steel skeleton behind the building. I think people like Saarinen, uh, Saarinen afterwards and Louis Sullivan beforehand both would have like joined hands over the fact that the Woolworth Building actually is this kind of incredible monument to uh, sort of verticality. And if you think about Gotham City and about like the fantasies of New York that exist in science fiction and popular culture and painting in film, there's no kind of gothic moment in New York that mm. really doesn't happen without the Woolworth building kind of behind that. From some of the earliest silent films depicting New York City to Warhol to Batman and all of his sequels, the Woolworth building is always around the corner from whatever we're looking at 
in terms of a kind of a fantastical environment of New York and of the mm. American city in general. And what an iconic and amazing building Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. David, thank you so much. Our first guest thank on you. the special edition, special episode of Rediscovering New York has been David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. I forgot to mention how you can get in touch with David. His email address is dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. And David, what's the name of your blog on Fifth Avenue again? How can people? Every Building on Fifth. And it's a, uh, it is available as a link through my uh, website at landmarkbranding.com. Great. Thanks. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with uh, another guest about another iconic New York, not building, but incredible series of structures, Rockefeller Center. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 212- Four nine five zero three one seven. Rediscovering New York is about New York's neighborhoods and other special topics about the city. Uh, even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Vince is my friend and colleague at Halstead, and his show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear it live at voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, it's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. I forgot to mention one thing. We had so much to talk about the Woolworth Building. The the upper part of the Woolworth Building is now a condominium, Uh, and I am a real estate agent, and my little commercial plug is when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in New York City. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property, and I even help them buy in the Woolworth Building. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. The second half of our show is focusing on an amazing piece of architecture, an amazing part of the city, Rockefeller Center, and my second guest is an expert not only on Rockefeller Center, but the art of Rockefeller Center. Phil Desiri, who's a licensed tour guide uh, by the Department of Consumer Affairs. Uh, He's also a member of the Guides Association of New York City. Uh, Phil enjoys sharing his passion for the Big Apple with tourists and locals alike. He came to the tourist guiding profession following a 35-year career as a graphic designer and art director for publishing companies and in-house corporate graphics department. Phil's walking tours, his company is called Walkabout New York, focuses on the art and architecture, the history and tales, 
and some of the quirky characteristics of the Big Apple, although we don't have any quirky characteristics. We're all pretty much above board in this amazing city. I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, well, we're all above board, but we uh, certainly have our own quirks and idiosyncrasies. From the age of 10, Phil wanted to live in Greenwich Village, and for 39 years he has lived that dream. He's loved, laughed, and learned in this vibrant and colorful neighborhood. He likes the village because of its small-town atmosphere but big-city style. With its irregular street plan, name streets, easy charm, and human scale, he finds the village comforting and also his home. A hearty welcome to Phil Desiri to Rediscovering New York. Phil, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, are you originally from New York? No, I'm not. I was born and raised in a, an agricultural community, three-hour drive from New York called Vineland. And at one time, Vineland was the egg capital of the world. I grew up next to a poultry farm, and the smell of coop cleaning days remains with me to this day. Was that a job that you had growing up? Uh, no, I didn't have oh. that job. I just remember the neighbors cleaning out their coops. Oh. Well, I can say I, I spent a week on a Moshav in Israel in the 70s, and I was assigned to the family that had the chicken coop. <laughs> so I can relate to cleaning out chicken coops and hauling 50-kilogram bags of feed. God, that was 16. That was a, that was a chore anyway. Uh, what had you decided to move to New York? Why did I move to New York? Because New York's the place to be. I wanted to be here since I was a child, and uh, I had an opportunity and I took advantage of it. How did you come to get into the business of showing and sharing New York and passionately um, uh, showcasing so much of its history and, it, and its special characteristics for people who would go on your tours? The last company that I worked for relocated and I didn't want to relocate with them. And I was searching around for how to occupy myself and came to me quite by accident. I was scrolling through my iPad one night and I came across, by chance, a site for tour guides and I thought I could do that. So I combined my love of the city, my love of art and history and those quirky characters you talked about, those stories related to them, plus walking, and I came up with a tour guide. Oh, wonderful. And how long? And you've been doing it for about 10 years now? Uh, no, I've been doing it for five years. Five years. I um, celebrated my fifth anniversary on April 1st, April Fool's Day. Happy anniversary. Well, Thank belated. It's been a couple of months ago. So that brings us to uh, Rockefeller Center. Um, what are the origins of Rockefeller Center? Because unlike the, the Woolworth Building, which is an incredible tower, Rockefeller Center is almost 20 buildings, and it's it ha its own campus. It's, it's, it's a block, it's an avenue wide, and, then it's, and it's three blocks long. What, uh, what are the origins of Rockefeller Center? Rockefeller Center came about by accident, in a way. Originally, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who was spending daddy's money, he... You say John D. Rockefeller Sr. was the founder of Standard Oil, Correct. And, you know, the first huge oil company in the United States. That's right. And John D. was trying to rebrand the family and was engaged in many philanthropic endeavors. And he set about, he learned that uh, the Metropolitan Opera, which was uh, located at uh, Broadway and 39th Street, had outgrown its facilities and wanted to move. And he, in an effort to uh, look better in the public's eye, leased up <coughs> from Columbia University, which owned the land that Rockefeller Center was eventually built on, he leased up that property from the university with the intention of giving those leases to the Metropolitan Opera. Now, it should be said that the, the, uh, uh, the area that's now at Rockefeller Center was Columbia University. It had originally been King's College down near Wall Street. Correct. Midtown was its second location. Correct. And they moved to Morningside Heights, what, about the turn of the last century, was it? Correct, okay. yes, the end of the 19th, early 20th. part of the 20th century. So they own this land? They own the land, 
and Rockefeller leased it from them. This was the late 20s when things were booming, the roaring 20s, the jazz age. But then October 1929, the stock market crashed and Rockefeller uh, was left holding these leases when the Metropolitan Opera pulled out of the plan. There were even designs that were architectural desi designs that were drawn up for this new complex, uh, Metropolitan City, it was going to be called. And uh, so we had th all of these uh, leases, and he set about, from his own pocket, to construct a Rockefeller mm. Center. How d it's it's an amazing complex, but you know you you look at it and you think how did a, a project of this magnitude get planned at the beginning of a huge economic downturn? How how could someone have pulled this off like that? Well, he had deep pockets. It was all his own money. Although I don't know what the exact finishing cost was, uh, he did finance all of it from his own pocket although the rest of the country was suffering, he did give uh, jobs, construction jobs, and other jobs to so many in New York City mm. at, during a, a very needy time. And there were thousands of workers who were building rockets. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And uh, the, the workers that you could see, but also there were also administrative people behind that as well. What kind of buildings were on the site before John D. Jr. decided to, to build this, the, this new marvel? Uh, one thing that's important to remember about Fifth Avenue in the 19th century, it was the place for the upper uh, middle class and the upper classes to live. And uh, this was part of uh, the area where Rockefeller Center would eventually be built. But by the 1920s, that area had declined, and the townhouses that had been the upper middle class's homes had been turned into bars and brothels. Lord have mercy, brothels and bars. <coughs> Those quirky individuals <laughs> you were talking about earlier. Um, how many buildings were designed for Rockefeller Center originally? Uh, initially, it was a total of uh, 14, and now it has a total of 19, given the addition of the buildings across from the original development on 6th Avenue that is today considered part of the overall complex. These mid-century modern buildings on 6th Avenue are considered part of Rockefeller Center, mm. but not the original uh, plan. Let's talk about the, the design and the architecture for a second. Usually when you have great structures, you identify them with a particular person like Stanford White or McKimmead and White or in the case of uh, the Woolworth Building, Cass Gilbert, but that, that wasn't to be in Rockefeller Center. What was Associated Architects and why didn't Rockefeller want any of the buildings to be ascribed to any individual architect or architectural firm? Ah. Uh. You have stumped me there, Jeff. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that. Okay, well, there were actually, uh, I think there were three architects, and for some reason uh, there was a, uh, an umbrella organization called Associated Architects, and he didn't uh, want, and I didn't know. I was curious as to why. Um, I know that Raymond Hood was the supervising architect. <laughs> he planned all of the buildings in general, but uh, he's the only name that I do know that is associated with the design mm -hmm. of the, the overall design of the complex. You know, one thing I've always wondered is, is on 6th Avenue at, at the, uh, the west side of the campus, there were these soaring buildings, but there are uh, a couple of small buildings on corners of, on the 6th Avenue side, and I always wondered why they were left standing and, and not demolished so the large buildings could run the length of the entire block because the people who owned those buildings at the time, they didn't want to sell, so the architects designed around them. Ah. Uh, and it almost wasn't called Rockefeller Center. Do we know why John D. Jr. didn't initially want the family name associated with the complex, and what changed his mind? I know that when Rockefeller, the Rockefellers contributed money to uh, causes that they were not immediately 
and intimately involved with, they did not want their name associated with it, such as, for example, Spelman College, historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia. That is all Rockefeller money. Oh, really? Yes, it I is. I didn't know. Is, is, is Morehouse Spel- College also or just Spelman? Spelman, Spelman was the name, the maiden name, of John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s wife. Laura Spellman is John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s wife. Wow. <coughs> and uh, so that they took her maiden name for the college because they were not directly associated with their money, but they uh, were not directly associated with the college. Wow. I went to Vassar and I uh, uh, lived, I, I, for two years I lived in Davison House, which actually was built, the, the D in John D. Davison. Uh-huh, yes, yes. I, d- I did not know about Spelman College. Well, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Phil Vizieri about Rockefeller Center. Be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our visit to Rockefeller Center. Uh, Phil, tell us a little bit about Walkabout New York and the tours that you host. Uh, Rockefeller Center's art is one of my favorite tours, the art of Rockefeller Center. I love that art. The other tours that I give, I have three Greenwich Village tours. There is a general Greenwich Village tour, a gay village walking tour, and one that's really fun, the gay village bar crawl. I also have a downtown Manhattan tour, a Central Park tour, and I have five subway art tours. Yes, and I am in the process of uh, developing a sixth one. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to launch later this year or early next year. I have to go on one of your subway tours. I have not been, but I've had the pleasure of being on uh, your gay history tour of the village. Did that a couple of years ago. It was, it was really, really good. Um, if people want to find out more about your tours, how can they, how can they do they that and get in touch with you? They can go to my website, walkaboutnewyork.com. All the tours are listed there. There's also a calendar and a schedule that um, the tours are listed, which tour is listed on, which offered on which day. Before we get to, I want to spend some time talking about the art of Rockefeller Center because it really is like a museum when it comes to artworks. But I wanted to ask one question about Radio City Music Hall. Was that part of the original design? It was. It opened in 1932, and the Rockettes uh, were part of that opening, and it uh, was the largest uh, hall uh, auditorium at the time when it opened. I think it still does have the largest proscenium in New York City, the second being the new Metropolitan Opera House. <laughs> uh, one, 
important point about the Radio City Music Hall is that I, I've taken a tour, a backstage tour, and uh, during, w- as we were, as the U.S. was preparing to enter World War II, the U.S. Navy came to study the hydraulic system of the stage at Radio City for their battleships or whatever they were going Probably to Probably aircraft use carriers because there were huge hydraulic systems that would bring... raise a, and lower the, the aircraft. Uh, yeah. aircraft. Yes. Uh, yes, so the, um, uh, the it, Radio City Musical played a part in World War II. Leave it to the story of the United States having entertainment uh, and architecture help uh, help out uh, uh, the, the, war the effort, defense yes. department, the war department. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about the art of Rockefeller Center. The, the art in the complex is really varied and is incredibly striking. Um, how was the art planned? How were the works planned? The planning came about as a modern version of the Beaux Arts style. Beaux-Arts style, which was spoken about by David in your earlier segment, integrates the uh, art and the sculpture and the uh, architecture all into one. Rockefeller Center updated that to a Art Deco style, very modern, sleek, geometric style that uh, was popular at the time, began in Paris, and was interpreted in many buildings in New York in the 20s and the 1930s. It's very angular, stylized work that uh, Rockefeller Center epitomizes. And it epitomizes it in a lot, from the, uh, from the plaza to uh, the inside of the buildings to the underground concourse, which, which, it's, which it's black granite or marble in very sleek lines, is, is, is really very striking. Before we talk about some of the other works of art, we, you know, we can't not talk about the art of Rockefeller Center without talking about Diego Rivera and the mural that he was commissioned to work on, which never saw the light of day, unfortunately, Man at the Crossroads. Um, who chose Rivera to first uh, create this mural in, in 30, Rockefeller Center Plaza? Diego Rivera was chosen by John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s son, Nelson, who went on to be governor of New York State. Four-term governor, should we say. And uh, Abby Rockefeller. She was Nelson's mother and uh, J.D. Jr.'s wife. They were major modern art enthusiasts and collectors. Both of them collected art by Diego Rivera. They were familiar with his art and they were responsible for giving him the commission in the lobby of the main building, 30 Rockefeller Center or 30 Rock. What was the theme of the mural of Man at the Crossroads? What did, what did Rivera uh, want and start putting into, the, into the, the, the work? He wanted to contrast communism with capitalism, but there were complaints. And when he included images of uh, Lenin, and Marx and Engels in his design, the Rockefellers requested that he change the design. And he refused. He was paid the balance of his $26,000 fee, and he was sent on his way. This was a mural, a, a fresco, really. And although you said earlier it didn't see the light of day. It has been recreated in a, a museum in Mexico City. So there is a version of it to be seen. The work that Rivera had completed, or as much as he had completed, was chopped up uh, and put into 50-gallon oil drums. The Rockefellers, as you say, were founders of Standard Oil. They had plenty of oil drums. And they were carted, these oil drums filled with fragments of, of a wall, with a frescoed wall, were carted away under the cover, literally, under the cover of darkness because the Rockefellers were concerned there might be protests 
about their censorship of uh, Diego Rivera's work. Oh, wow. There are a couple of uh, uh, pieces of art that, that uh, have their basis in Greek mythology. We have Atlas, the statue of Atlas, which oh, is yes. holding the Atlas. world. Atlas is very curious. Atlas is the Greek god, uh, and he stands directly across from the seat of the archdiocese of the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church, oh, directly right, right. across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. I like the juxtaposition of one and the other. And then, of course, one of the most famous outdoor uh, uh, sculptures in New York is uh, Prometheus the Firebringer. Yes, yes, at the, uh, the sunken plaza where the uh, ice skating rink is. And it's well known because it sits just below the famous Christmas tree, annual Christmas tree. And uh, so you can, you get to see both of them together in so many photographs. Wow. Well, I wish we had more time to talk more about the art of Rockefeller Center, Phil, but we are out of time. Uh, I want to thank my second guest, Phil Desiri of Walkabout New York. You can experience Phil's uh, expertise and his tours firsthand at walkaboutnewyork.com. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and also follow me on Instagram. My handle is jeffgoodmannyc. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the amazing Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who is our first guest tonight. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history. 
its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 